0: Well, if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Timothy. And uh, this will be 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we'll be reading the first seven verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father, And Jesus Christ, our Lord, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Come to you refreshed already today. Come to you forgiven. Come to you already equipped. What we come to you needful. need for. We need your words to guide us. We need your spirit to enliven us. We need your protection. We need your promises. We need your warnings. And you've given those to us, and we thank you. Help us, Father, to see your purpose here in these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we haven't covered the book of 1 Timothy. At least I couldn't find it. On the website looking a long ways back. So I thought I'd at least start going through 1st Timothy. I'm not sure how far we'll get. My hunch is that um, I won't be able to preach very much and uh, I won't get very far before Pastor Kaiser will pass through me um, and perhaps correct some of the things that I say today. I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm thankful. To be with you here today. I, I've just enjoyed the service so far. I've been so blessed. I've been blessed by the prayer, John Shepherd's prayer, by Rodney's prayer, by John May's preaching, and, and, and the baptism of Ethel. Oh, beautiful music. Psalm 3 is probably my favorite. I've just been so blessed today. Well, this is a book, a letter fired by the Holy Spirit, as is all scripture. So it's a pastoral epistle, and there are three of those. There's one, 2 Timothy, and Titus. But there's something here for all of us. This this covers a number of important issues that I'm I'm really excited to work through you with. Some controversial issues, like passages on limited atonement. Men's and women's roles in the church. Dress, speaking. Widows, elders, deacons rich people, much in I want to spend some time on the greeting, actually. Since we haven't been in an apost- in an epistle for a while, uh, these are very important. And um, so I want to spend a little bit time on this. One, here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he states that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you why. Why does he do that? He does it also in Romans. He does it in 1 Corinthians, Second Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Basically, every book in which he is the sole author, he, he says, that. why does he do that? Well, Joe Moorcraft points out, and I agree with him, that it's not really to establish his authority. You see, you don't get established by saying who you are, right? I mean, anybody could say that. So it's not really establishing the authority. Could it be that Paul is asserting and defending himself as an apostle like he did in Second uh, in Corinthians? I don't think so. Paul seems to have a good sense of humility and confidence. So it's not really to establish his authority, nor is it used to authenticate and seal the letter as apostolic or canonical. And if they are the Word of God, when they are read, they are recognized as the Word of God. I I love the way that our confession says this. Listen to this. This is how we know that something's scriptural by the heavenliness of the matter, by the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesticity of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. That in itself is beautiful. That's how we know Scripture is, because it sounds like Scripture. Because it is Scripture. And, very importantly, we get the full persuasion of it being Scripture because we have the Holy Spirit. He lets us know. So it's not that Paul is calling himself an apostle that raises this to the level of Scripture. It is Scripture. So why does he use it? Well, it's his official role. And like we learned in a few sermons back, it's proper and it's not prideful to say what your official role is, what you are operating as. And if we we view God as sovereign, we know that He appoints everything. Not only does He appoint Paul, He appoints everything. So if you are a postman, you can, you can assert being a postman because that's what God has you doing. Really, what it's doing is it's giving glory to God for what He has done. By the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at God has So that's why He says it. Now let's look at something else here. In verse 1, it says, By the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, when you... When you read that, let me ask you, have you ever thought, why is God listed separately from Jesus? you thought that? I mean, maybe this is evidence against Christ's divinity. Maybe this is what caused some of the confusion in the, in the first century. Well, actually, this, this really upholds the Trinity very well. As Bruce Ware points out in his book, the the clearest, the strongest, and and perhaps the most irrefutable evidence of Jesus being God is this simple principle. Only God can do what only God can do. You see, Jesus here is acting alongside God, doing what God is doing. Paul couples the Lord Jesus Christ with God our Father, as a co-source of spiritual blessing, grace, mercy, and peace that only God can impart. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Two people doing the same thing, giving the same things, and only God can do what only God can do. We also see here how God and Father are interchangeable. So sometimes that really helps us to to understand when it says God and Jesus Christ, God is understood just in a nomenclature way to be the Father. God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And by the way, Christ here has a a very grand title as well. This is written in Greek and in the Septuagint. the, The word for Yahweh, Kyrios. The same word used for Jesus here. And the Holy Spirit isn't left out. Holy Spirit's here as soon as ink hits the paper, before ink hits the paper. Peter taught us, No prophecy came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. See, so we're starting in a Trinitarian way. And I want to talk a little bit more about God our Savior versus Christ our Savior. Most of the time we speak about Christ being our Savior. But we really need to understand, and we, and, we, and we need to have a handle on the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. So I'm going to do a little, a little test here. I'm going, to, I'm going to say a very familiar verse. Um, you're going to know it. Well, the Duff's are going to know it. Because uh, it's a good TMS verse. And I want you to think of where it is. This is the verse. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Through the washing of regeneration... And renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't say it. Just think about. it. You know where that is. Titus, chapter three. Turn there with me. Turn to Titus chapter three, and I want to show you a very good place to go to see the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. So we just read that verse, very popular verse. It's uh, it's verse five, uh, sorry verse. Chapter 3, verse 5. You see it there? Well, let's read the verse in front of it. Let's read that verse, and then let's read the verse after. it. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, we could have a long discussion about the precise nature of which each of these do, but the point I want to just get is they're here together. They're working together. Our salvation is Trinitarian. So just in these introductory words, we have some clear theology, and we're starting with the Trinity. Now, let's talk a little bit more specifically about the book. Where is Timothy? Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. Turn back to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. We see that in, in verse 3. Now, I urge you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. And so that's where he is. Now, that, that'll be important as we walk through this next uh, section. Ephesus, just real quickly, you probably know, very prominent city, uh, very infamous city, uh, home of the... Uh, of the temple of Diana, one of the seven, seven so-called wonders of the world. Very, of course, very worldly, very prominent. And it's declined by this time, but nevertheless, still very prominent. So that's where Timothy is. Now, who is Timothy? In verse 2, he's a true son in the faith. You know, the, the apostle Paul and the apostle John, they, they seem to have the same desire. You know, we, we know what John says, right? I saw a t-shirt the other day when we went, Nathan, when we went to that, uh, that sword making thing, John has no greater desire than to see his sons grow in the Lord. And Paul's the same way. And I would imagine that's the way pastors are, <laughs> because that's the way Jesus is. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be a true son in the faith, to walk in the truth, So this is a personal letter, and in, in, in order to really understand this letter and the next letter, we need to know Timothy, we need to know where he has been, and we need to know how he came into the ministry. So I'm going to walk through this pretty quickly with you. I, I, hope, you'll, uh, I hope you'll enjoy this story. It's, it's, it, I'll, I'll kind of do it like Pastor Kaiser's doing it, been doing it as he walks through the books. Or you can think about it you know, when you watch a YouTube video and you put it on double speed. That's kind of what we're going to do. Open up to uh, Acts chapter 16. I'm going to walk you through Titus's, excuse me, Timothy's ministry. Acts 16, and let's read verses 1 through 3. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy the son of a Jewish woman who believed but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra in Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. I like what uh, Donald Guthrie said about this. He, he's, I've got one of his books on, on the New Testament. He says this really for, for Timothy is a practical matter. Okay, it's nothing more than a minor surgical operation. There's nothing spiritual about this. But it is for the fact that his father was Greek and where they're going into new territory where there's a number of Jewish believers. So just removing an unnecessary offense. That's all it is. Well, I'm starting this kind of in medius rays, as they say, in the middle. Here in chapter 16, we're on Paul's second missionary journey. I gave you um, a map. You can look at that as as we go along here. But this is where we meet Timothy first. And it it appears that this is the first time that Paul meets Timothy. He may have seen him there um, as a son. Um, He was there on his first missionary journey about a year to two years prior. So he may have met Timothy there. But we know Timothy has been a Christian his whole life. We know that from 2 Timothy. And his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice were probably converted after Lystra's disciples. Disciples from Lystra were at Pentecost and came back. And then as I mentioned, Paul went through Lystra on his first missionary journey, which was about AD 45 to 47. So Timothy is saved as a child through the scriptures. And then most likely he's been discipled for a couple of years after Paul has gone through. Now, here's something for us Presbyterians. Look at verse 2. Notice how he's appointed to office. He was spoken well of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Now, the commentaries point out that essentially he's put in front of Paul. Look at Timothy. Probably, look at what your doctrine has done here. Look at this man. So this was essentially an election by the congregation. Okay, so that's the election part. But we also have ordination, don't we? We've got election, ordination to bring elders in. So how is he, how is he ordained? Well, if you were an Episcopalian, you'd, you'd probably turn to this verse. There, there's a verse in Second Timothy 1 6 let me just read it for you therefore i remind you to stir up the gift of god which is in you through the laying on of my hands there we have it right it's a bishop to a minister laying on that's how he was ordained paul laid his hand on him and timothy was ordained there's a problem there's also another verse there's another verse in the book that we are going through you can turn there if you want 1 Timothy 4.14. But keep your finger in Acts, because we're coming back to Acts. This is what it says. This is what Paul says to Timothy. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Okay. So what do we conclude? That um, both Paul and the eldership laid hands on him. So it was Presbyterian through and through. We can continue on. Okay. Now, this laying on of hands didn't necessarily happen here, because as as we'll see, Timothy doesn't really have a prominent role at the beginning. And that's one of the major things I want to show you. It takes a while for him. It's, It's later down the road, literally later down a long road, that we actually see Timothy. But the point is that Timothy had a very good upbringing. He was ready to go. And you young men, I, I, hope you, I hope you gather encouragement and exhortation from this. You know, for, for all the Timothy's that were at Lystra, there were probably a number of men that didn't go into the ministry, but still had callings to lead their family and to, and to advance the kingdom. The point is, is that Timothy was ready. And by, by being rigorous in your doctrine and in your sanctification, like Gary prayed to, to improve upon the baptism... That makes you ready when you are called. And that's why we need to have a rigorous um, education and sanctification program for young men. And who was it that that made him that way? Well, that facilitated it that way. We know it's the Lord's grace. But from 2 Timothy 3.15, we read, And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. And we know that it was his his mother and his grandmother that taught him this. So mothers and grandmothers, please be heartened by this. Your labors produce fruit of the greatest kind. There's no Timothy, if there's no Lois, and there's no Eunice. Okay? So please be heartened by that. But Fathers, don't think this gets you off the hook. Don't think it gets us off the hook. You see, in the Bible, sometimes the narratives are not presented because they're normal, but because they're not normal. Timothy's father was a Greek, and we got from here in, in uh, Acts 16. He's not a believer. And so this, this fact that he was just discipled by his mother and his grandmother is not something that we want to have repeated. Okay? So I, I just want to have exhortations for both fathers and mothers. The Bible speaks about fathers instructing throughout the Old Testament, and the New Testament. But there's also definitely a role for women, especially single families, and if the father is not a Christian. Now, the other thing that needs to be said about Timothy's childhood is this. Sometimes, particularly in Baptistic circles, and even in ours, sometimes we elevate this idea of a rebellious child. And say, wasn't it a dramatic thing, what the Lord did Well, it is a dramatic thing. It is a wonderful thing because of what the Lord did, but not because of what the child was. We need to think biblically about this. God brings the idea of being a father to us and to our children. We heard a lot of that in the exhortation on baptism, communion meditation. That's the biblical model. And so Timothy's showing us a great model that from the childhood, you knew the scriptures bringing you up. Timothy is well-prepared Okay, let's continue on our uh, fast YouTube video back to Acts 16. And you you can look at your handout if you want. Not all of you got one, but those of you who do have this. Paul is on his way on the second missionary journey, and he's on a mission. Acts 16 comes out after Acts 15. And so he's carrying the message and the decrees from the Jerusalem council, and he's picked up Timothy along the way. Now, what I want you to see as we go through this, I want you to see what Timothy was exposed to. Because we have a tendency to think that Timothy was a novice. And that he was inexperienced. So let's just see what the record shows. We're going to see that, he, that Timothy was trained in the Hebrew way, side by side with a mentor. And that's what, what, what we think is best. We in our denomination, we in our church, we don't think that a brick-and-mortar seminary, I always careful not to say cemetery, brick-and-mortar seminary is not the best way to train elders, at least not if that's just done exclusively. There's got to be some feet on the ground. There's got to be a Hebraic way, walking. Pastor Kaiser's handout on leadership development talks about this. It's, it's, it's very good. Okay, so back to Timothy. Timothy is there when they go into Philippi. And Paul witnessed to Lydia of Thyatira. The Lord opens her heart. Paul baptizes her household. Okay, this is all in Acts 16. He most likely saw Paul and Silas have their clothes removed and beaten and thrown into prison. And he was probably in the town when Paul and Silas sang and prayed and there was an earthquake, and they got released. He probably saw the jailer converted and his household baptized. He saw Paul refuse to slip away quietly when the local authorities offered that. And Paul says, nope, I'm a Roman. You come and get me. Timothy learns how to minister in hostile lands. This is Peter Hammond kind of stuff. Okay, acts 17. I kind of skimmed over a number of stuff there, but let's get back into this. Acts 17. They go into Thessalonica. Timothy sees Paul reason from the scriptures on a Sabbath, and a great number of devout Greeks believed. Meaning, devout Greeks, meaning those who are, who are practicing old covenant faith. They believed. Then they go into Berea. I love this. Look at verse 11. Speaking about the Bereans. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched out the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. But the rebel horde from Thessalonica is on the road. They're coming. Things were good in Berea for a while, but then they show up. Verse 14, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Okay, this is what I want you to see. This is the first time we actually see Timothy mentioned in an official role. Okay, and look how far he's gone. He's picked up in uh, Lystra. And let's see, second one. I can't read mine very well. Yeah, second one. He's yeah, he has to go around Asia. So they've gone all the way up to here. Here's Berea. So he went from there to there before he's even mentioned. And Paul goes down to Athens, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city that was given over to idols. So Paul went down before him. So he, he, he leaves Silas and Timothy at Berea, and he goes down to Athens. And he is appalled at the idolatry in Athens. And he says to Silas and Timothy, come down here. And you can imagine why. Paul and Silas are up in Berea. The Bereans are fine. They're busy studying. Come down here. I need you here. And it's very important that he calls them down there. Again, let's read verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Okay. So really, he couldn't wait. He had to do something. Now, <clears throat> Paul's at Athens. And I reread this. His, his sermon at Mars Hill. It's glorious. He's in the middle. The epicenter of humanism. A professional idolatry. And he faithful skillfully tells them about Jesus. This is a sight. You know what? That's, we'll save that for another time. Uh, it's verse 30 for, through verse 32, if you, if you want to look at sort of the, the, the climax of that. So Timothy missed that one. But no doubt, Timothy and Silas, they come there and, the, and 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 there's still going to there's there's a lot of Athens left to see I'm sure after that now look at acts 18 verse 5 when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia Paul was compelled by the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, so he's actually moved on from from Athens to Corinth. I didn't mention that. But the, the point here is that this says a lot. This says a lot about Paul. It says a lot about Timothy. It says a lot about Silas. It says a lot about being brothers in the fight. See, Paul was emboldened when these two showed up. This is awesome when Paul declares that he's going to the Gentiles exclusively from here forward. And it may be that Timothy was providentially chosen by God for this latter half of Paul's ministry. Isn't that like God? To turn a weakness into a strength in a way you don't expect. And Paul goes on to Ephesus, verse 18 19. Then he came to Ephesus and left from there and entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Okay, so now he's on the way back. And that really completes the, uh, the second missionary journey. Um, if you want to see a pivot point, it's Acts 18.23. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Um, Phrygia, in order, strengthening the disciples. So that's where we start the third missionary journey. Okay, and this last part, I want to walk through some things with you because it's important, I think, I'm, I'm going to propose that this is how Timothy gets to Ephesus. But I hope that So far, you get a sense of how much Timothy has been through. He's really no novice. And we can see why Paul would ask him to be his adjutant in so many cases. So this time, about a year later, Paul starts his third missionary journey. And this time, Paul is able to go through Asia and go straight to Ephesus, keeping his promise that he's going to come back. Where Apollos has been there. And Paulus is gone to Corinth. Now, the Ephesians really soak up Paul's teaching. They burn about three-quarter of a million dollars worth of occult books. And we have the situation with Demetrius. He's had enough. They're disturbing the whole city. Look uh, Look at 19, verse 20. That's 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed and Timothy was there when that happened now let's go on to verse verse 21 when these things were accomplished Paul proposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying after I've been there I must also see Rome so he's already got a plan that he's going back to Jerusalem, and then he's going to Rome, and that is fulfilled. Now at this time, Paul sends Timothy and Erastus to go ahead, ahead of him, all the way to Macedonia. So we have the progress of Timothy. He's not even listed, and then he's listed second, now he's listed first. And he's going to be the one that goes to Corinth, and he's probably carrying the letter in your Bible to the 1 Corinthians. So the Paul, the uh, Paul meets up with the party at Corinth, and he stays there three months, and then they come back with the whole gang. And this is I'm getting to a point where I'm going to give you uh, my understanding and my thesis of this. So let's read Acts um, 20, verse three through four. So this is Paul and stayed three months, and when the Jews plotted against him he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedon, Macedonia and Sopitar of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonicans, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychius and Trophimus of Asia. Okay. So basically they've been down at Corinth and they say, we're going back. It's time to go back. And they're going to go back up through Macedonia. Now, On the way back, you're going to see this. He does not stop in Ephesus. He's probably in a hurry. He's coming back to keep the feast. And I think that this is important because he's very close to the Ephesians and he sees a great need at Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 28 through 31. This is a very familiar passage that elders turn to a lot in uh, exhorting themselves to service. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. For this I know, that after my departure, and he's talking to, I'm sorry, he's talking to the Ephesian elders here. "For For this I know, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Here's the point. Paul's concerned about Ephesus. And he's on his way back and he doesn't have time to stay there. He actually asked them to, to, uh, to travel from... Uh, Miletus to Ephesus so that he can meet with them. So if you open your study Bibles and you you see when does 1 Timothy happen, all of mine say the same thing. And all the commentaries that I read say the same thing. And that is, we don't know. We don't know when Timothy was at Ephesus. When I went through this, it makes very good sense to me that that this is where Paul asked Timothy to go into Ephesus. And here's my reasons. The things that we're going to read over in First Timothy sound very similar to the things that Paul's been concerned about in Acts chapter 20. So I thought that maybe this was it. I thought maybe this is where um, Timothy goes to Ephesus. Now, why is this important? I mean, is, it, is this just an academic thing? Let me say It's not, and here's why I think it's important. First of all, when we have a situation where we say, you can't reconcile this with this. Um, I've learned from my mentor to not be satisfied with that. Okay, so so we should try to, to reconcile that. Secondly, history is real history. Bible history is real history. These are real people, and we should try to figure that out. But thirdly, this isn't very important for Timothy. Because if my um, theory is correct, and I, and I want you to be cautious because I'm, I'm really a novice at this, Timothy has shown himself to be very dedicated. As a commander, I sent people all over the world. I would say, go there, go there, go there. And that was pretty easy to do. People ready to go. You know what's really tough? When you're on the way home and you ask somebody to stay, can you stay longer? So if this is true, Timothy has really done an amazing thing. Furthermore, Paul has already said, this is a problem, church. There's some problems there now, and there's, and there's problems coming. And he still goes. So I thought that that might be how Timothy gets to Ephesus. Turn back to 1 Timothy with me. When I came back to this and, I, and I, I read verse 3 and it says, I urge you when I went into Macedonia remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach them the doctor. Okay, so what does it say? He says that when Paul went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. In other words, they were both in Macedonia. I'm sorry, no, they were both in Ephesus and Paul went into Macedonia. And I see what all the commentaries are saying. There's no record of anything like that in Acts. There's no record when they're both in Ephesus and then he, he says to go into Macedonia. But I looked at the Greek, and I, I barely know Greek. I've known participles for eight days now. So I called my Greek professor. And it really hinges on two words, those two words, I went. And I urge you when I went into Macedonia. Because on the theory that I'm presenting, it's not, um, it, it's, it's uh, more than just him. And he said, "Well, actually, a better translation is, was I was going?" And that's what the ESV will, will show. And probably the NIV as well, I'm not sure. See, in Greek, it, 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 it participles show whether an action is completed or whether it's ongoing. And this is ongoing action. When, so when I was going." So that lines up with what I think, but there's still a problem. It says, "When I was going." but I, I said, according to what I understand, they were all going. And then he says, Ray, look at it. There's no participle. There is no I. So you could translate this if you wanted to. It's just as accurate. And I urge you, when we were going into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So it's something to consider. It's not a critical doctrine. But I, I think that's how Timothy winds up at Ephesus. Is Paul asked him to stay on his way home, and he stays there. Well, that was the introduction. Um, Sorry, it was so short. Um, Now uh, I'll get into uh, the overall purpose of this. I I love it. I love it whenever an author or a pastor gives us what his purpose is. And 1 Timothy 3.15 says this. This is his purpose. This is Paul's purpose for writing the letter. But if I am delayed, I write it so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So that's his overall purpose. I need you to conduct yourself in a certain way. Why? Because the church is the house of God, the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, so that's what this sermon is really about. It's about staying true and staying focused on our Lord's word. And here's our first dealing with this. Now, I'm going to ask you, What does this mean that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth? Doesn't that sound a lot like Rome? Isn't that what they say? Well, it's not saying that at all. First of all, the church is the one by which the Lord preserves his word. The church is the agency. Not not in an official way, but through faithful people. You see, the Roman Catholic thinks that the church authenticates the scripture but we say, actually, the church preserves the truth once delivered. And this is nothing new. If you look in Romans 3, you'll see that the church, the old covenant church, was the one who kept the scriptures. Those are the ones who were entrusted with the scriptures. And that was a blessed thing. Now, was there any council in the Old Testament? No. God preserved his word organically through faithful people. But he did it through the church. Now, one example of the way that this can be done today, when there is Bible translations, I submit to you that that needs to be done by faithful men in the church. They're very important. It's not always done that. It hasn't always been done that way. But we should readily accept this mission. If the church is the bride of Christ and Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, why is it so hard for us as Protestants to affirm the church is the pillar and ground of the truth? It says it here. We do it by realizing we're not creating truth. We're not accepting or authenticating the truth. We're accepting and keeping the truth. Now, the church also preserves truth by proclaiming it. How do we proclaim it? Well, first of all, by prayer. It's so essential. We should be in so much prayer before we approach the work. If the Holy Spirit is the one who opened Lydia's heart, as we saw in Acts, We need to pray to him that he'll do that every time we come to the world. That's why we pray when we're here. So we must proclaim it. The other thing is we must do it. We must do it in love. And and we'll get to this a little bit more later. 1 Timothy is a very practical book. It tells us how to keep the truth by practicing the truth in love. One commentator said, this is a how-to book. A lot of practical things. We've gone over a number of those things before, but other ones are like, how to be a good employee? How to deal with wealthy people? So that's Paul's overall concern, but he has a specific concern. And go back to our primary text in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, And I charged you when I went into Macedonia, or when we were going into Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Okay, no other doctrine. Greek word. Hetero de doskelio. Probably a made-up word. Sounds like a made-up word. Okay, he, Paul may have invented this for a good purpose. Other doctrine. This is, now, this is not the same thing that we find in Galatians. This may remind you of that a little bit, but in, in Galatians, we're, we're dealing with a heresy, a type one heresy. And that is dealt with throughout the book of Galatians. Here it's different. There's no core heresy going on. We have things like fables, genealogies, idle talk. These things are still very concerning. And and this really is important to Paul. Look at the next to last verse of this chapter. Verse 20, 620. So he's going to end with this. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So it's on his mind from the front to the beginning. This is his concern. It's doctrine that's been added to. Now look at verse 4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So what are these fables and what are these genealogies? Well, there are two main sources of these types of things in that day. First is Jewish, and the second is Greek. Okay? On the Jewish side, they may have been taking these fables and endless genealogies from two books. Books are pseudepigrapha books, the books that are written in, in, um, in somebody else's name and, and falsely. Now, both of these books that I'm going to mention, which is the Book of Jubilees and the Antiquities of Philo, both of them are embellishments of the Old Testament history. And uh, Pastor Kaiser has them in his library. You can go look at them if you want. I didn't read uh, the the Antiquities of Philo because I'm not sure that's it. Because from what I read, that didn't come around until AD 70. And this is prior to AD 70. But the book of Jubilees had been around for about 150 years. And if you open that up and you open up your Bible, you will see it's very similar. But there's a lot more people in, in the genealogies, particularly in Adam's genealogy. Okay? And there's a lot more stories that go along with that. So this could be the endless genealogies and fables that, that we're talking about. So this could be the, the Jewish part. Now, an- another thing that makes us think this might be it is Titus over in Crete is dealing with some of the same kind of things. And in Titus 1.10, it said, this is Paul writing in time to Titus, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, same type of words, especially those of the circumcision. So it could be that. But not to be outdone, we have the other Greek doctrines as well. So these could be Cretan myths. Cretan myths are just a subset of, of, of the Greek mythology. Now for you children, Greek gods, you may have heard about those and seen those. I hope you know there's a no, they're, no, they're not gods at all. They're just made up. They have no power. They don't even exist. But the Greeks thought that they did exist. So it could be mythology or it could be asceticism, okay, which is self-denial. I want to talk about this for a minute. We have to be careful with that term asceticism, okay, because there is a proper biblical self-denial. That is an essence of Christianity is self-denial. But here's where we have to be deliberate. And we have to be discreet. If it's an unbiblical self-denial, if it's an added-to self-denial, then it's asceticism, and then it's wrong. And and we get some sense of this in chapter 4. Maybe we'll cover that later. Now, it doesn't seem like this asceticism was developing in Ephesus very much. And based upon what we read in Revelation, we cover that. Actually, you know it's been almost five, 2014, almost four years since we went over Revelation chapter two. I don't know if it's been a long time, but if I'm correct on that. But we saw there that in Ephesus, it wasn't so much that their doctrine was bad. Their doctrine was pretty good, but they lost something. Remember what they lost? They lost their first love. So um, this asceticism did not fully develop in, uh, in Ephesus. But probably what caused them to go astray was exactly what Timothy is dealing with here. It's these distractions. So anyway, it could have been asceticism. could have also been Gnosticism. You know, that all-too-common heresy in those days where physical matter is bad, spiritual matter is good. And again, but again, I don't think that this was full-blown because we know where Gnosticism leads, right? To denying, not the divinity, but the humanity of Christ. And we don't see that, that, hap- that happening in Ephesians. So it's probably not that. So what was it? This, these Greek things or these Jewish things, we don't actually know. Most likely it was a mixture of those. Now, before you say, whew, I'm glad we have nothing like that today. Let's have lunch. Hang on, hang on just a second. We have these things all around us. Hopefully they'll stay out of the church, but in our culture, we have them all around us. The Book of Mormon is this, the Apocrypha. Been around a long time okay if we read it as history, but it's not okay if we read it as scripture and teach it as scripture. You may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas written uh, between AD 150 and AD 350 claims to have secret words of the living Jesus. Some of you will remember the Jesus Seminar by a man named Robert Funk. Not making it up. <clears throat> who thought it'd be a good idea to use secular history to see how much of the Bible's history was actually true. How about the Da Vinci Code? Remember that? More secret knowledge about Christ. These things are around us. And probably your friends or your extended family have been affected by, by these things. Roman Catholics have not been successful in keeping them out. That's why they have purgatory purgatory. Veneration of the, of the saints, idolatry of, of Mary. These things were added on. These are fables. Things are really interesting, right? And these things divide the body. Look at verse 6. From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Turned aside. Other versions say drifted away. There's two ways of drifting. There's the drifting that you know about, and there's a the drifting that you don't know about. I think there's at least two space movies that have this idea that somebody's spacewalking, and they get disconnected, and they don't have any rocket boosters, and they're floating away, but they know it. Did you see it in their face. Nothing I can do. I'm pretty sure there's at least two of them. So that's a drifting away that you know about. That's not, well, if you're a spaceman, that's a dangerous kind. But normally, you can get back, right? The, the other one is a drifting that you don't know about. And that's the one that Paul is warning us of. That's the Paul. That, that's the one where you may not even know it until the judgment day. That's the one we have to be careful of. Like I mentioned, we see Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, and we don't really see doctrinal error. In fact, they're really commended for their doctrine. They lost their first love. And here's the danger, I think, for a doctrinally sound church. Maybe they, maybe we, get so comfortable in our doctrine that we look for something a little more edgy something a little more conversation-spurring. And that's what can draw us away. Just like a husband with an overwhelming hobby over time can be drawn away. So what do we do? How do we prevent this drift? How do we prevent it from happening? It happened to Ephesus in about 10 years. How do we prevent that? in the next 10 years. How do we prevent it 20 or 50 years? I'm going to give you some practical ways. First of all, keep homeschooling, okay? This is one reason we uphold homeschooling even over Christian schools, because Christian schools tend to be broader and more fables, and those things can sneak in. And much of it, much of these things come in by peers as well, so that's the first thing, and the second thing is, no good doctrine. Know the good doctrine. You've heard this word picture probably many times before. The FBI, in order to train people how to recognize counterfeit money, what do they do? They Train them over and over and over in the real thing. So they can instantly spot when it's not real. So recognition is key. Early detection is key, right, to survival. So, no doctrine. Pick up Concise Theology um, by Packer. I like Burkhoff's Summary of Christian Doctrine. The catechism. If, if we actually teach the catechism, not just memorize it, that's really going to help us a lot. Now, there's a tool that I think is good for us to not get into divisive things. Unnecessary distractions And divisive things, and that's this book right here, and it's available to all of us. It's produced by Dominion Covenant Church, and it and it shows how we should really be focusing on some core things that all Christians do, and then some distinctives that our church has. And the idea here is to not undermine. Well, it's it's to stay true to the Christian core and to not undermine what the church is doing. And one of the One of the best ways that you not undermine what the church is doing is to not have those private conversations that, you know, your leadership, my leadership wouldn't agree on. Okay, so there's some practical ways to do it. But, look at this here. Verse 5. Got a little bit more to go here, not much. Now the purpose of... Of the commandment is love from a pure heart. That's the overwhelming way that we stop the drift, that we keep this stuff out. Now, the this word purpose is telos, and you probably know what the Greek word there means. It's more than a purpose, it's a goal, it's where we're going. If you're on a ship, you pull out your telescope and you look, that's where we're heading. So the purpose of the commandment, the commandments from the Lord, the purpose, the end of this, where we're going, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. I, uh, <clears throat> I had to take survival school a number of times when I was in the military. I imagine you other military guys have. Some of you who are even not military, perhaps you've done it. One of the things they do is they teach you land navigation. And uh, you, you have a compass, and you have a map, and you gotta figure out where to go. And the rookie mistake, the one that I made, the one that everybody makes, is they orient the map, they look at the compass, and then try to walk with the compass. And they walk zigzag all over the place um, because you can't really do that. There's a bush in the way, there's all these, all these obstacles. What you have to do is you got to take your map, you have to take your compass, and you got to look at something a long ways away. That's how you get there. And then you take about 10 steps, and then you look real quick. Okay, I'm fine. And then you look again. Oh, I didn't realize. That's the way you do it. That's the telos. That's the love that's a long ways away. Now, we have, we have a disadvantage today. I need to talk about this love. If love is our target, there's a problem. Our love is fuzzy. We don't really understand love, and there's two reasons. Number one, we only have one word for it. The Greeks, as we say in Texas, they got a whole mess of words for love. We should define what kind of love we're talking about. This kind of love is the agape love. It's the selfless love. It means kindly, concern, or devotion. So that's the first problem. We're not precise enough on how we define love. There's different things of love. You can study that. Secondly, the second way our, our, our love is fuzzy is because of the movies. I mean, that's where we get most of our understanding of love. And I say this especially for you teenagers. You have to be careful there. They, it's almost always wrong. And... The main reason that it's almost always wrong, and this is happening more and more, is a role reversal. See, because love is vocative, You're doing something. And the problem now is that by, in expressing this vocative love, we got the ladies saving and the men nurturing. We're all messed up. So we need to defuzzify love. We need to Take out our, our, our uh, software and do the noise reduction on it. We need to clear it up. And, and we do that by prayer and by a study of love. What about a men's group on studying love? How does that sound? Hopefully it sounds really good because there's a manly, biblical love that we're called to. We've got to have that. That's the goal. That's how we avoid this drift. That's how we keep this stuff out, is a focus on that love. Now, just a little bit more s- specifically. We focus love, we, l- we-, we-, we learn what love is, and that's our target, long ways off we're looking. But every 10 steps, we ask ourselves: is that loving? What am I doing, what am I saying? Is that loving? Is that from a pure heart? Is that from a good conscience? Will that build up my friend and my wife? my husband my brother my sister just that quick you know we can do that we we can do that by god's grace i think so dcc has very solid doctrine we have deep doctrine we have doctrine that applies to every area of life and we need to keep it that way but let's be careful not to add things that distract let's be careful of things that can lead us astray to a good conscience before God, that can lead us away from a sincere faith, and that can cause us to lose our first love. If we want to have things to study, if we want to have things to talk about, we got a whole lot. We got more than we can ever study and learn in that confessional biblical faith. Let's stay away from these fables, from these made-up things. Well, God is able to keep us from stumbling. He's our telos. He's our hope. Christ is our example of love, and he can keep us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this pastoral epistle. We've, we see the trinity here. We see the love between two men here. We see even how a good church, even a doctrinally sound church that's been under good teaching can drift away. And uh, we need your help. We, we approach your word. We approach... You, we approach this prayer in confidence that you will do this for us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.